Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you so very much for joining me for this program. And, and this is a really special program. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. And I have the special privilege of interviewing Colonel Jeff Williams. Uh, Jeff is an astronaut. He has had three or four tours on the International Space Station. And um, he's a, a dear brother in Christ. He has been a member at Grace Community Church pastored by John MacArthur. Uh, he's moved recently, but but uh, was there for many years. And uh, Jeff and I spoke at the Truth Matters conference back in 2019, and he did just a, a wonderful presentation there. And I've always had a bit of an interest in astronomy ever since I was a little kid. So uh, I'm a bit like a kid in the candy store for this interview. So I'm really looking forward to it. Jeff, brother, thank you so much for coming on the program. How are you today? I'm doing great, Justin. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Good, good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. So, Jeff, you have, um, was it three or four tours that you've spent on the International Space Station? Well, I had four flights to the space station. The first one was an early assembly flight before the expeditionary cruise uh, began on the space station. That was way back in 2000. It was a uh, space shuttle flight. Okay. Uh, it was the third flight to the space station. And then after that, I had six, uh, I'm sorry, three six-month tours. Three six-month tours. And so you've spent, you told me just before we started recording, 500 and some odd days on the International Space Station. Yes, that's and, right. And that's close to a record, correct? Well, at the time, it was a record uh, among Americans. And then a year later, uh, my astronaut classmate, uh, Peggy Whitson, uh, surpassed. She got extended on orbit, and she surpassed that. So now they say I still hold the, the record for American men. <laughs> American men. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, Jeff, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into um, some of the details about your, your time in space and, and the things you've experienced. But before we do that, can you give us just a, a little overview of your testimony, how you came to know the Lord, and, and maybe just a little bit about your family? Uh, yeah, you bet. My wife and I were, uh, we met first when I was a cadet at West Point back in the late 70s. We got married in 1980. Uh, she was raised Catholic. Uh, I was raised, I guess, a cultural Christian without um, attending church or whatnot, but we were, uh, our family was, we called ourselves Lutherans, whatever that meant at the time. Um, again, no church participation, uh, and, and life went well, but then about seven years into our marriage, we went, uh, into, uh, we got to a point like happens often, uh, a crisis in our marriage and life. And, uh, through God's, uh, provision and providence, um, my wife, Anna Marie came to faith out of that in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for her, it was a sudden occurrence, a, a sudden regeneration. Mm. Um, and for me, uh, I spent the next uh, four or five months studying the scriptures, trying to understand what had happened to her. And after oh. primarily studying the Gospel of John and the, and the letter to the Romans, uh, which is where 
tracks and other things took me primarily. Uh, I committed my life to Christ, and that was in 2000, I'm, I'm sorry, 1987, 1987. So from that point, we, we began to rebuild our life, our marriage, our, the, how we parented our children. And so we've been living uh, devoted to Christ since, uh, I guess, 19 early, uh, 1988 uh, is what I would say. Okay, 1988. So you and your wife, Anne Marie, and you have how many children? We have two sons, uh, adult sons. They're in their mid-30s, mid or late 30s now. Uh, yeah. They're both married. Uh, the older one actually lives with us, uh, with his wife uh, here in Washington State, and they have our five grandchildren. Wow. Our younger son and his wife, uh, no children yet, uh, but they, they live in Singapore. Okay, Singapore. I've been there before. Yeah, yeah. that's a busy place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Beautiful and hot. <laughs> yes, beautiful and hot. Odd thing about Singapore, you know, it's so crowded there, but I saw so many um, of these souped up sports cars, like high dollar, high end yeah. sports cars. And I'm not sure there's anywhere in Singapore you could get over 50 miles an hour. But, but anyway, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, Jeff, tell us a little bit. How did you become an astronaut? What set you on that path? How did you get on that path? Well, uh, way back in the 70s, when I was at West Point, I uh, was inspired by at first by uh, some mentors who had just come back from Vietnam, Army helicopter pilots. Uh, and uh, they kind of, through their influence, I quickly set a goal to, to get into flight school and fly helicopters in the Army. Uh, in 1978, I also read the book, The Right Stuff. The first Army astronaut was selected. Uh, and all of that coalesced along with the influence of some friends to say, hey, I want to do that. So I set it as a goal then. Uh, I applied first in 1985 and a uh, long process uh, through some disappointments and setbacks. And, but I just kept on um, persevering. And in 1996, uh, I was finally selected by NASA after, I think, six applications and three interviews. That's um a lot of rigorous training went into that. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, yes. Yeah. It, um, it took a couple of years of training of uh, primarily the space shuttle and all the operations for my first flight. It took four years, uh, nearly four years of training for my first six month uh, tour on the space station. And half of that time was in Russia. So uh, Russia has been a huge part of uh, my experience as well. And I know we're going to get into a little bit more of that later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so to to be a candidate for going to the International Space Station, you had to study. You had to learn Russian, correct? Because a lot of that thing is put together by Russians and manned by Russians. Yeah, it's a it's a actually a great lesson in geopolitics. But after the Soviet Union fell, um, uh, and after years of uh, after President Reagan had announced the space station freedom. Uh, but Congress would never approve the building of freedom uh, through the 80s. When the Soviet Union fell and uh, we entered into a partnership, I think it was a brilliant proposal uh, all around by some uh, uh, leadership in our space program, as well as getting together with leadership in the Russian space program and coming up with a proposal to integrate what was space station freedom with what would have been uh, the Mir-2 space station in uh -huh. Russia. Uh, many of the components were built on the ground already. 
Um, and the, that gained the support because of uh, prim- primarily because of non-proliferation uh, policy issues with this new Russia. We didn't want their brain trust and their weapon systems to go to places like uh, Iran and North Korea. So we entered into partnership with them, and uh, it's been a good partnership. That means that half the space station, or about 40% of it, is Russian-made and Russian systems and uses the Russian language and controlled by Mission Control in Moscow, which uh, is only in Russian. And then also we're rotating crews uh, to the space station on the Russian Soyuz. So it required about half my time in the 2000s in Russia training. Uh, My commute was Houston to Moscow, Houston to Moscow, four to six weeks uh, apart. Wow. Was that, was that hard to learn, learn the language? Uh, people ask me, what's the hardest part of preparing to go to space? And I said, by far, no doubt, the Russian language. <laughs> I was always a math and science and engineering guy, and I avoided those kinds of courses. But, uh, of course, the requirements forced me into it. Uh, but I love it now. I've been taking Russian formally for over 20 years now, and I continue to, to, uh, to take uh, weekly lessons. Uh, just oh, to continue okay. refining it. Yeah, I'm I'm still working for NASA, although remotely right now. Okay. And in God's providence, correct me if I'm wrong, but the church that you are a member of now uh, has many Russian believers in it. Is that correct? This is a Russian immigrant church. There were three waves of immigration um, after the Soviet Union fell, uh, primarily in the 90s. But even since then, there's been a continuous uh, trickle of immigrants uh, that arrived here several years ago, they, they recognizing that now they're going into the third generation of the original uh, immigrants uh, and growing up in, in the American culture with English being more and more the primary language, they, they're transitioning also into English. So there, there are lots of non-Russian speakers in the congregation, but it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing story here of, uh, you know, they were primarily Russian Baptist, highly persecuted. Uh, imprisoned for their faith in the 60s. And even I've heard of accounts even to the early 80s, merely for preaching the gospel. Uh, So they came out of this underground Russian Baptist community. And uh, when they had the opportunity to to leave, many of them did. And this is one of the largest concentrations here in the Vancouver, Washington, Portland, Oregon area. The only other uh, larger con- concentration of Russian immigration that I know of uh, among evangelicals is in the Sacramento Valley area in California. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Everything in God's providence. Studied yes. Russian to, to be an astronaut, and now God's using that knowledge um, in, his, in his church. Praise the yes. Lord. Praise mm-hmm. the Lord. Well, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about your time in space. So, um, 2,800 orbits around the Earth. Um, you've taken more photos from of Earth from the space station than any other person in history. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's correct. And what you're um, referencing is uh, after the 2006 flight, the first long flight. Uh-huh. And that was all true then. And since then, I've had another year in space and and continue to take okay. uh, photos at a rate beyond anybody else. I, and my primary motivation for taking the photos was to be able to bring the experience back and share it vicariously with others. So Jeff, let's talk a little bit, a little bit about your time on the, the space station. So 
you were up there for six months at a time, up to six months at a time. Um, were you able to take a shower in that time? How do you talk to us just about some of the logistics of daily life? Yeah, obviously it's a very unique environment. And uh, no, we don't have a shower up there. A shower would be very impractical and weightlessness. To, you would right. waste the vast majority of the water and then, and then cleaning up the water would be a, a really uh, quite a challenge. So we, we essentially take sponge baths um, and it's a very clean environment and very easy to stay clean. Yeah. Um, but it, it is uh, a challenge working in a weightless environment where everything, you know, from your pencil to your toothbrush to, to all the heavy equipment that you're working with, uh, large equipment that you're working with is weightless. So you have to manage it in a unique way. Yeah, I bet. Uh, as far as uh, washing clothes, like, do you have different outfits? Were you able to do anything with your clothes as far as washing them? How, how does that work? No, we don't wash the clothes either. Uh, okay. We just consume the clothes. And when they get uh, uh, dirty enough, we throw them away in the trash and pick up new ones. So we got a stock that lasts us for for the time we're going to be up there. And, and oh, okay. uh, Yeah. So it's actually, you don't have to do laundry up there. No laundry. Just throw it away. Okay. <laughs> now, now, one thing you might not think about is uh, one of the biggest challenges up there is managing the trash because you can't throw it overboard. Uh, there's no way to get it outside. Uh, so we managed uh, all the trash, takes up a lot of space. And then periodically when we have a supply ship that's emptied and getting ready to leave, we'll load it up with the trash and it burns up in the atmosphere. But you can imagine never being able to take out your kitchen trash. You know, if 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 yeah. it's been there over a long weekend when you've been away, you come back and there's, you smell it right away. Right. So you got to manage the smell. So we seal the the stinky trash as as we build it. Okay. And from time to time, you would have um, what the space shuttle would come and and supply you with more supplies and that kind of yeah. food and whatnot. Yeah. Up uh, through uh, into 2011, we had the space shuttle, of course, flying regularly, both assembling the space station as well as resupplying it. Uh, but we also, over the years, have had uh, a variety of supply ships, unmanned supply ships. Uh, the Russian uh, so-called progress uh, supply ship has been a regular way to get supplies up there. Um, in recent years, we've had um, uh, SpaceX flying cargo ships uh, for us. The Japanese yeah. have a had a, a cargo ship that has flown several times. The European Space Agency also had a cargo ship that flew for a few years. So there's lots of different uh, redundant ways to get cargo up there. Yeah. Okay. Well, talk to us a little bit about um, the interaction with your crewmates. I mean, if you did you ever get on each other's nerves? And if you did, it's not like you could just go for a drive and, you know, get away from things. What was the uh, interaction like with your crewmates? Overall, the interaction was very positive. I think if you add up all the my crewmates plus the visiting crews while I've been on the space station. I think I've been in space with about 56 different individuals from mm -hmm. maybe a do dozen different countries or so. And my interaction has been very positive all along. Now, obviously we, we spent a lot of time thinking about those kinds of issues. We want to be a team player. Uh, most people are selected with that in mind that they have those kinds of qualities uh, to be part of a team uh, and to um, have the, the right levels of self-care to take care of yourself and then take care of each other. 
we literally have our lives in each other's hands. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and we train, uh, as I said earlier, typically for years together uh, so that we get to know each other. Uh, my habit and during training was always to have the crew over to our house for dinner uh, uh, periodically. Um, okay. and, and they would reciprocate uh, uh, in, in uh, like manner. Uh, so we invest a lot of time to get to know each other. And then, you know, practical day to day, we interact uh, in a normal way. And then if somebody is having a bad day, you can kind of sense that and you know when to kind of give them some space and leave them alone and, and uh, let them get some rest or, or whatever the case uh, we also are up there so long you have personal things that occur on the ground with your family and you know it might be a death of a loved one or or a special event like a graduation or a marriage or or whatever a birth uh so they can yeah. be very positive events or negative events and uh we help support each other through all those things too yeah yeah indeed so were you able to keep in contact with your wife were you able to talk to her from the space station yeah, we knew right in the at the beginning of the program it would be very important to uh, maintain morale on the space station. And with the isolation uh, such as it is, it was important to to build the systems for regular contact. Uh, so we we had easy access uh, to each other. I, I would say I had easy access to anybody on the Earth. It was hard to get a hold of me. Uh, but my <laughs> wife figured out how to, if she needed to talk to me, she figured out how to do that. But we would I would call her every day, typically twice a day when I knew she was awake because we work on Greenwich Mean Time up there. So we were awake about five or six hours before she was. Uh-huh. Uh, so when she got up, I would give her a call when I when I could in between uh, uh, work tasks. Um, and then I would be sure to call her at least by the time uh, I went to bed. Uh, so we would talk twice a day and. And then every Sunday afternoon, we would have a two-way video conference as well. Uh, mm. So then I, we'd be able to see each other, and uh, she would often involve uh, other family members or um, friends or, or, or whatnot in those video calls. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very neat. So it didn't matter on which side of the world you were in, in your orbit. I guess with satellites, you could talk to her at, at any point. Yeah, we orbit the Earth every 90 minutes. In the early days, uh, we, about half that time, we would have coverage through the communication system to be able to make calls. But in the later years, we virtually have 98, 99% of the time covered uh, through uh, relay satellites that uh, orbit in different places over the Earth. So we, the space station communication system automatically just uh, transitions from one satellite to another one. And we have uh, nowadays we have really good communication. We even have Internet access up there, which is I don't I'm not sure that's a good idea. But uh, <laughs> we uh, we got that a few years ago. I get asked sometimes what was the first thing I did on the Internet because we gained access while I was on board in 2010. And uh, my answer was, well, of course, I got on the Internet and ordered my wife flowers. Oh, <laughs> that's a good husband. <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. Well, um, so Jeff, when you're up on the space station, you're 200 and some odd miles off the ground, correct? Yeah, it's about uh, average is 250 miles. 250 miles. Okay. So did the moon look 
granted the moon's 250,000 miles away. So kind of negligible as far as how close you are to it, but did it look any different um, up there? Did, was it, did it look bigger, crisper? The, the moon itself, you, you could say, you could argue that it looked a little bit crisper because you wouldn't, weren't looking through the atmosphere, but yeah. a clear night, uh, especially uh, in places like where you live, you know, the moons pr- can be pretty crisp when you get away from city lights. Uh, but it was, it was definitely crisp. Uh, the obvious uniqueness of viewing the moon and other things is the setting in which you find the moon uh, to find it, uh, to have the earth, the, the sphere of the earth below you to have the moon either appear or disappear over the horizon as you orbit around the earth. Uh, and you see the, the, uh, the sphere of the moon kind of be distorted as it goes through the, uh, the upper parts of the atmosphere because of the refraction of, of light rays. All of that is is very very unique, and of course the moon is uh, has attracted the attention of humanity uh, since the beginning of time, uh, and it certainly attracts your attention up there. and And uh, it's it's no uh, it's not lost on people that uh, we've been to the moon, but we 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 want to go back to the moon too. And yeah. I think that's just the curiosity put in us by uh, by God at creation. Right. Right. Yeah. We're. We're supposed to go back next year. Is that correct? 2023 or 24? Is that we're trying plan? to launch. Uh, we're working at this spring uh, launch in the test flight of a new rocket and a new spacecraft unmanned. Uh, and then uh, about a year later or so, having a test flight with a crew on board. Uh, and it won't land on the surface of the moon, but it'll go and orbit around the moon. Both those test flights will orbit around the moon. So it's a it's a big uh, uh, program called the Artemis program. Yeah. Um, uh, to establish a semi permanent presence in the lunar system, that includes a space station uh, that orbits the moon, as well as operations to go periodically to the surface. Okay. Okay. But not we're not planning on landing landing a man on the moon for the next few years. Uh, yeah, the uh, original target given to us by the uh, Trump administration was 2024. Uh, I think it'll be no earlier than 2025. Uh, okay. But no, we're still working toward that. Yeah. Okay. All right. What were the what were the stars like, Jeff? I, I know on a clear night here, when you can look up and and see the Milky Way, was it? Was it similar to that or was it exponentially better? Well, I, I would have to say it's, it's much better. And you do have very um, vivid views of the stars in your area and areas like where you live. Uh, but up there, again, you're off the planet. Uh, of course, just like here, you have to turn all the lights off inside um, to be able to see them. But uh, mm-hmm. the Milky Way looks like a painted uh, background, you know, behind the star field. Um, and you're orbiting the Earth. Uh, and it's at an inclination to the equator of a little over 51 degrees. So that means you see oh, in an orbit, uh, or at least the night part of the orbit, in the night shifts through uh, phasing so you're you're looking in all directions over a period of time of weeks uh at nighttime so you see both the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere over that time so i mean we don't get to see the southern hemisphere stars unless you fly to south america or somewhere and then spend time looking at them we only see the northern hemisphere stars so you can see all of that uh they're, they're they're very vivid 
they don't twinkle. Oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, I guess and, not. Uh, yeah, it's it. No, it's it's just an incredible, incredible uh, sight. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Um, talk to us a little bit about your spacewalks. You did two spacewalks from, if I remember correctly from your book and, um, uh, you didn't just wake up one morning and decide I'm going to go for a stroll out into space. I mean, this took a lot of planning, right? Talk, tell us a little bit about what the spacewalks were like and what they entailed. Yeah. The, the book, uh, chronicles in a very short way, uh, two spacewalks that we did in the 2006 flight. In my career, I've done five total spacewalks. Uh, the first one was actually in 2000, um, and the most recent uh, two were in 2016. Uh, spacewalks were very necessary for the building of the space station and currently continue to be necessary uh, for the maintenance of the space station. And we do periodic upgrades outside. We do repairs outside. We deploy experiments outside. Uh, so there's a lot of outside activities. Uh, a spacewalk is uh, the highlight, I think, of the entire experience. Uh, mm. It's the most demanding thing we do, both physically and mentally. Yeah. Um, it's a long day. We start about six in the morning getting ready to get, get suited up and get everything configured and checked out. And, uh, and then get into the airlock and go through the, the protocol to, to depressurize and get the door open. And you're not out the door until afternoon. So you've already been working at it for a little over six hours. And then you're outside for typically six and a half, seven hours. So it's a long day. It's a very intense uh, experience. Uh, I call it the ultimate skydive. Um, the whole time out there, it's uh, very choreographed and planned. Uh, so there's every step of the way is, is, uh, has been choreographed and rehearsed. And uh, for us, it's a mental rehearsal to prepare, but the mission control center also has somebody talking to us continually to, and we report to them our accomplishment of tasks and they keep us, uh, on the, on the plan. So it's, uh, it's definitely a highlight of the experience. Wow. I can only imagine what it must have felt like the very first spacewalk you did and that hatch opened and you. Yes. Nothing. Yes. It's one thing to be inside the space station, look out a a window and you still can't see the entire globe uh, from at least the windows early on. We let, we added what we call a cupola in uh, 2010, I guess we added it. And from the cupola, you can see, the essential the globe of the earth uh but to go outside and then to see this space station with the earth in the background see the entire globe of the earth and you and you you sense the motion going seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour so you're skimming like we would cross north america in about 10 minutes um and you know as we as children in school we studied the globe and we saw the shape of continents and and other features on the earth's surface well from up there you can see those shapes and you say wow looks just like the 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 globe in the study yeah um so it's a it's a absolutely amazing experience and then you go day night day night um 90 minutes around the earth um typically almost half of that is nighttime uh in talking about going out the door it's a uh, it's an um, um, amazing view to go out, especially the first time and see the globe. But uh, there was a couple of my spacewalks where I went out when we were nighttime, 
And it's like going out into a black hole and all you see is the lighting of the structure of the space station around you. Wow. And then it's just the black as black can be beyond that. Um, so that's a little bit uh, eerie, if you if you will, as well. Oh, I bet. I can I can only imagine. My goodness. Um, all right. So, so, Jeff, this is the question that I feel embarrassed to even ask you, but I'm going to because I, get, I see comments and people email me. Believe it or not, I know you're aware of it. There is um, there is a, a movement. Thankfully, I think it's kind of reached its zenith and it's on the decline, mercifully. But there are some folks out there that believe that the earth is flat. She's around. She's a firm. She's a fully packed. She's around the back of my head. She's flat like your head. Um, and embarrassingly, they many of them claim scripture as their support for that. They're the foundation for their belief that the earth is flat. Is the earth flat? And <laughs> is there any biblical? What would you say to those who say that uh, they, they use the Bible as their support for it? I actually heard uh, that for the first time in, in my last flight during uh, in 2016. And uh, I, I first became aware of some comments in the social media that I was posting about that. And of course I, I read it and I thought it was a joke. There's lots of, lots of humor and comments. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I returned to, uh, to earth um, and, and looked in, into it a little bit more that I realized that there are those out there that believe the earth is flat. And um, speaking of embarrassments, uh, ironically, many of them are, are believers. Yeah. Um, and they use, as you referenced, uh, scriptures, which are clearly, clearly figurative language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I came back uh, from the last flight, I, in public speaking engagements and Q&A, I would invariably get those kinds of questions. And uh, I, at first, uh, you know, I tried to inject a little bit of humor into it. Like, certainly this isn't uh, real. Realized it was real. I, for, a, for a short time, I tried to engage logically. Uh-huh. But I finally got to the point where my answer is simply boiled down to two words, utter foolishness. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, as you alluded to, I think that over the last year or two, I see that to start, start to be going away anyway. At least maybe people are not willing to bring it up anymore. Um, but, but, yeah, it's, it, I mean, that's, all, that's what I've finally come to is it's utter foolishness. Uh, for some of the folks that get, have gotten caught up in this, which I think probably was energized by somebody in their basement on the Internet, um, <laughs> right. uh, that, it, you know, you just have to pray for them. And, and I think over time, they'll, they'll hopefully come out of it. Uh, it's nothing new. I mean, you can go back hundreds of years in history and see the same kind of thing. And it was it was actually the as far as I've read in history, it was actually the church that that drew people out of that and said, no, yeah. the scripture is very clear. And, and the, op, our, our practical observation is very clear that sustains everything uh, right. as we understand it to right. include the, the spirit, uh, the sphere of the earth. Yeah, indeed. You, you referenced the book of Job several times in your book, uh, the work of his hands, <laughs> Jeff. And, um, Job 26, verse seven, God stretches out the North over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Um, 
you know, for those of us who have never left uh, terra firma, we, um, you know, we, we understand that intellectually, but you, you've seen that you, you, you talk in your book about how indeed the God has hung the earth on nothing. Right. Uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, um, I, with a little bit of humor, tell people when I'm giving a presentation and I reference that verse, I said, you know, I, I forget the number you said 2,600 times around the earth or something that was in that one flight. So one multiply flight. that by three, that many times around the earth, I can assure you there are no strings attached. It, uh, <laughs> it's um, uh, and what marvels me about that verse and many verses in the book of Job is the, the, uh, it, that it reveals one, it reveals a perspective that we would not normally have uh, on the planet surface. It's it relays a perspective from off the planet, and I had the privilege to spend time off the planet, and I saw that perspective in the scripture. That certainly gives testimony to the the uh, the author of scripture being the creator. Yeah, uh, and that particular chapter, of course, is emphasizing the majesty of the Creator, the majesty of of, of God. Um, right. And and the other interesting thing there is the uh, the the uh, the first part of it is, uh, of course, you reference the hangs the earth on nothing, but stretches out the north over the void. I just recently read um, uh, a comment on that. Um, the I mean, what what is in those days, and we think this is the oldest book of the Bible, right? What, the concept of north, and then stretching out uh, uh, above north, and there's something about north even back then that uh, was prominent. And of course, it is the uh, the transcendence of God. I, I think is certainly implied there. But think about it: the the Earth not only hangs on nothing and is out in space, but it rotates. Right. Uh, every 90 minutes and rotates on an axis. And uh, so we, we visualize the axis going out the north side, going infinitely is, is how we uh, conceptualize axes, uh, going to right. the north star. You know, that's why we call it the yeah. north star. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's, it alludes to what we practically understand in terms of the, the motion of the earth in the nothingness of space. Yeah, indeed. And then just a few verses later, and this, this goes to the um, discussion of the shape of the earth as well. Job 26, 10, God has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. Um, the boundary between light and darkness, that is, that is known as the Terminator, not Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator, but the, the, uh, uh, the, the boundary between light and darkness day and night. And Job 26, 10 actually supports, gives, in my view, irrefutable proof that the Bible teaches that the earth is a sphere, correct? Uh, yeah, and again, it's uh, it's affirmed by just practical observation. Uh, uh, and like the earlier verse, it is one that gives a description that one would have from off the planet. Um, uh, yes, we call it the Terminator. And we cross the Terminator twice in orbit, obviously going from day to night or night to day. And it's very distinct on the ground. Um, and, yeah, it, gives, it just gives testimony to the, to the author of Scripture again, inspired by the creator and perspective from off the planet. 
So yeah. just a, it's in those are, are that's a powerful chapter, um, especially when you put it in the context of experience uh, as an astronaut. Yeah, indeed. In fact, the the Terminator, as as Job describes it here, it, it, a circle on the face of the waters of the boundary yes. light and darkness. Yes. That's that would not even be possible if we were living on a giant manhole cover. Right, right. If you take a sphere and you draw a line on the surface of the sphere, you you get a circle. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Right, right. Well, Jeff, let me give me bear with me here while I pick up. I want to show everybody your book. Many folks have seen it on my uh, bookshelf behind me in various videos, but this is this is a, your book, the work of his hands. And, uh, and this is, it's not just, I mean, there's many pictures in here. Some of the, some of the pictures you have taken of the earth, but it's a, it's a fascinating story as well. It's a, you give a, basically kind of a synopsis or chronology of, of your time in space, both before and preparation and all the way, what you experienced on space and even coming down, uh, after you got back to earth and what that was like. So, um, Tell us a little bit more about your book and, and where people can get a copy of it. Sure. Um, yeah, the book was not my idea. Actually, it was uh, there were people that were watching my photography as I sent it down to the earth um, during that flight that that were inspired. So apparently I um, you know, took some pretty good photography or unique photography. Amazing. Um, and um, and uh, so people were encouraging me, hey, got to do a book, got to do a book. And it's a longer story than we have time for today, but uh, I, I said, okay. And in God's providence, uh, the door was open for me to, to do it, to include a publisher coming out of a crowd one day and saying, Hey, Jeff, we, we want to do a book. Uh, so none of it was uh, my activity seeking to do a book. It was all uh, external. Um, and I, agreed to do a book. I said, I don't want it to be just a boring technical book with pictures and a bunch of captions. I want to tell the story. Yeah. And uh, I want to not tell the story about Jeff Williams. I didn't want it to be about me and my experience and all of that. I wanted to, it has a goal to vicariously take the reader through the experience uh-huh. as if the reader is going through the experience. And uh, the experience of course is uh, it's framed in the mission uh, the 2006 flight from launch to landing and some of the major events that occurred during those six months on board. Uh, but it, uh, I also tried to be reflective in uh, the providence of God of just being there and doing that and the awe and wonder of all that, but I'm also reflective on the, on the God who we know, the, the triune God who we know as creator and who have, provides us everything that we need and who has uniquely provisioned the earth um, and of course, uh, climaxed history with the redemptive work of Christ. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that was my overall arching uh, motivation in the book, um, and it uh, continues to, I think, bless people, or the Lord continues to use it uh, to to bless people. I think it's in its eighth printing right now. Oh, wow. um, and, and folks can get it uh, either directly from the publisher or from Amazon or from many of the book distributors. Uh, it's easily found. And uh, so it's yeah. easily, easily available. Well, it's, it's a fantastic book. Um, I, I really in, enjoyed it. I'm going to read through it again, but uh, 
uh, many, many of the photos that you took are in here. You've taken thousands of, of pictures, I suppose. Uh, one of them, the, uh, the, I think maybe one of your favorites, or at least one that you really highlighted, was the Cleveland volcano. And yes. uh, thankfully, it's it's not in Cleveland, Ohio. But uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. That was a unique opportunity. It was kind of a special providence, kind providence of God to take that. that that's right. Uh, my wife Anna Marie likes to call them the leftovers of God's grace when we have uh, relatively seemingly little things happen in life that just are are timed in a special way. In that particular case, it was 2006 in May. Uh, I had been on board for six weeks at the time. And in those days, because we had reduced the crew size to just two of us after the Columbia accident, after we lost that crew and and the space shuttle was grounded, uh, Pavel Vinogradov, uh, my Russian crewmate, and I were the only ones on board. We'd been there for six weeks. And the, uh, like we all have bad days every now and then, I was just having kind of a down day. Uh, yeah. Six weeks up there, isolated, uh, away from the family, talking to Anne-Marie every day, but knowing that she was enduring it as well. And uh, in a six-month flight, the, the end is still over the horizon. Yeah. Uh, so we had talked through that that morning, and, uh, uh, and I went up about my business and I was doing my work and uh, I tried to make it a habit of taking a break uh, from my tasks every day and uh, late morning and going down uh, to the Russian part of the base station where Pavel was typically working and and have a a bag of tea through a straw with him and so we would uh, chit chat uh, during that time during the break and uh, we did that that day and uh, I started floating back to the to the front end of the space station where I was going to start continue my work and I passed over a window and saw uh, the Aleutian Islands pass and I recognized them as the Aleutian Islands I had a camera right there uh, uh, staged next to the window I picked it up as was my habit and started taking pictures of one island then frame the next one then the next one something in the back of my head said hey that last one didn't look right and I went back and reframed it and what I maybe thought was originally a cloud it was no it was a erupting volcano so I had time just to snap two or three more pictures of the volcano and then before it was out of view. Um, and I, of course, that was I was all excited because I could see the entire plume of the volcano, which meant that it had just just started right. its eruption. Um, I uh, quickly floated up and called Houston and said, hey, we just passed over the Aleutians. I had this this newly erupting volcano. Got some pictures. I'll put them in the downlink so you can you can come get them. Uh, and I was all excited, and my the energy that they heard in my voice kind of excited mission control. Oh. Um, and uh, so we got done with that call, and then I, I went to work and orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes. I set the alarm on my watch uh, so that I could be back in the window to take more pictures of the volcano 90 minutes later. Right. I came back uh, for that time frame, passed over again. And the volcano was quiet, very quiet. It had fresh lava that had flowed down. It's a classic volcano shape. Huh. Uh, uh, you could see the fresh lava, but the, the plume was completely gone. Nothing, nothing left of it. Huh. Uh, I snapped a couple pictures. I found out that uh, in the meantime, uh, in Mission Control, they had gotten a hold of the volcano, uh, Alaska Volcano Observatory. Uh, I found it on the Internet. They called them up. Uh, the Capcom was another astronaut by the name of Steve Bowen. He called up, got a, um, a lady on the phone, one of the scientists up there and tried to explain who he was and 
that they'd gotten a report from the space station about one of their volcanoes. They were unaware of it. And you, he could tell by the tone in her voice that she thought it was probably a prank call. Certainly yeah. wasn't real. Um, uh, they finished their phone call anyway, and he got the information to me. So I called her up from the space station and talked to her. And when you got a call from the space station, especially in those days, it, it sounded different. There was a little bit of a delay. Uh, so it was it's unique uh, in that respect. But I could still tell that she was she was a little bit speechless, a little bit. Do I believe this? Do I buy this? Is this a prank huh. yeah. or whatnot? Well, eventually they found out it was all on the up and up and that really excited them. And we had a nice conversation after the flight uh, reflecting on that. Um, uh, so th that was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with the interaction with, with them. Um, a lot of fun, of course, with mission control. Um, and it brought me out of my slump, brought me out of my yeah. bad day. Yeah. And, uh, and I rode that, that, uh, that uh, wave for a while. Um, what I didn't know until later was that Anna Marie had been specifically praying that the Lord would bring something into my day that would lift me out of my slump. Really? Wow. Never believed that, uh, it would be a, an erupting volcano, but, uh, wow. so wow. it was a, it was an wow. amazing providence of God just in a relative little thing, right. Uh, just yeah. bring us something into our day, uh, to encourage us, um, yeah. uh, to this day. Uh, I'm the only person either on or off the planet that I know of that saw that eruption. It was very short. The observatory wow. in Alaska eventually got data. They, they didn't have real-time data, but they, they would get it. And uh, they uh, actually ordered some pictures after my report and got some global pictures of the, uh, the eruption. Um, and I've got it somewhere, but it's a, the, the plume had come out and then it stopped. And then the plume detached from the mountain and was a uh, hundred or a couple hundred miles, maybe downwind of the volcano when they took this picture. So that little puff uh, wow. was uh, the Lord gave just for me. That is, that is very cool. That is very, very cool. Yeah. Kind providence of God. That's a really neat story. So did, I guess you didn't know it was at the time that you took the picture, you didn't know, Oh, that's the Cleveland volcano. i I had no idea. No, I learned all those details after the fact. It just happened to be a target in the window. It looked interesting to take a picture of it. Yeah. And then it took me a second or two to recognize there was something unique going on there. Right, right. Well, Jeff, you also talk about in your book how the um, your time in space, it didn't necessarily confirm or, or strengthen your belief in God, as in his existence, because you're already a believer, you had no need, no need for any proof of that, but it did, it did deepen your, your belief, or at least your understanding. I'll, I'll say it that way, but in your under deepen your understanding of God as sustainer and provider. That's, that's a, a great way to put it. And that's exactly what it did. It didn't change my understanding. It didn't change my belief. Um, because we know by grace, uh, faith comes through the work of the Spirit and the Word of God, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, and I already had that as you, uh, but the experience deepened in understanding in a very practical way. Uh, those, uh, the scriptures as, uh, uh, reveals God and His work, His work of redemption, but also 
which is largely underestimated his work of creation in the scriptures as well. Um, it, it, the, the practical experience to then dovetail to that, uh, to the word of God, uh, just deepened my understanding. And it actually motivated me in a, in a renewed way to seek out the truth of scripture as it relates specifically to God's creative work and the provisioning that he put in his creation. Right. Indeed. And oh, by the way, then if we think about it, like lots of things in life, when we actually, we, we are inspired with things like that. If we look in the mirror, it also um, motivates us to dig a little bit deeper uh, to gain more understanding the depth of richness of the truth of bearing the image of God. Mm. Because only humans care about such things. Only humans contemplate. Right. Only, only humans are motivated to seek out the truth, to seek out uh, what exists. And that, uh, that brings a, a deeper understanding as well. Yeah, indeed. As much as we might as much as attached as we might get to our pets and as much as we love them, you know, our, our, our dogs and our cats and they're, they're not fascinated. They have no comprehension. There's nothing in them that makes them appreciate what we appreciate. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one final question for you, Jeff. Um, and then this is something I've thought about too. What was uh, with your crewmates, the interaction that you had with your crewmates? Uh, I'm, I'm sure they became aware that you are a believer. Did you have any fellow believers as your crewmates? Did you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them? Uh, what was, what was that like? Just like our experience on earth, I had a variety of opportunities, uh, a variety of depth of conversation with different individuals. Some individuals, uh, absolutely no conversation on the topic. Yeah. But I think everybody was aware of, of my faith, uh, and some I was able to have a deep interaction with. Um, uh, I, there were there were two or three over the years that uh, we we would um, reflect on the scriptures, uh, like what we referenced earlier, as well as many others, uh, in the context of being there and being able to view the earth, um, uh, and all of that. Uh, there were a couple of other believers that were with me over the years that we were able to share communion, um, and we would have uh, typically a Sunday morning devotion, and then share communion uh, with uh, uh, up up there. So that was a that was a special provision as well. Yeah. And of course, uh, related to that, I was I was tied to and connected with lots of people on the, on the planet, uh, both individuals, uh, friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ. Uh, yeah. that I stayed in contact with one-on-one, as well as congregations. Uh, the congregation here vicariously participated uh, with me in the last flight. Grace Community Church, you mentioned earlier, um, participated in many ways. My uh, home church in Houston participated as well. By the way, I got to go back in the, in the introduction. You mentioned Grace. I've had uh, a long relationship with uh, folks at Grace Community Church, uh, Grace to you, yeah. Uh, John, uh, in particular, has been a friend for uh, for over twenty years, mm. uh, but we've never been members of Grace Church. We've never lived there. Okay. Uh, so, okay. like you, I've I've been just a short term visitor every time we've been there. But I've been there countless times. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a special relationship. And I would say that 
that it's the the impact of that ministry, like so many others, uh, has been by far the biggest impact on my growth and understanding of the of the gospel. Yeah, same here. Same here. Uh, I can I can say the same thing, and uh, I don't. I don't, I haven't spent as much time with John as have you, John MacArthur, as, as you have, but uh, enough to where uh, I've seen genuine, he's a genuinely humble man and loves the Lord. I've got a lot of respect and appreciation for him. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. He's been a, a, a tremendous impact on my wife, Kathy, and me. And, mm-hmm. and uh, like your wife, my wife was saved out of the Roman Catholic Church as well. And shortly after her conversion, she started, someone turned her on to John MacArthur and she started listening to him and, and uh, very instrumental in, in her growth. So, yeah, yeah that's very good. And, and speaking of, of MacArthur, uh, you were telling me, I think this was before we started recording, but um, you took the cover of one of his commentaries in orbit. Yeah, the commentary of the New Testament, the last one to be published was a commentary of Mark. And uh, uh, a couple of my friends down there and I, we brainstormed before the flight, what, what could I take? I wanted to take something that would be unique and special to space, to the space station, and then give it back to him. So we we finally settled on uh, just the cover. So we took all the pages out to make it lighter because I was limited by <laughs> the, the mass I could take. Right. Uh, but took that cover, and then uh, when it got back, uh, to Earth, uh, took that and took some pictures of it on orbit and, and uh, some other elements and put them in a big frame. And, and I have the privilege of, to present that as a gift to John at Shepherd's Conference. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2017. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was a special opportunity. Yeah, that's really neat. That's really neat. And uh, yeah, I was telling you before we started recording as well that in 2016, there's only been one time where I've seen the International Space Station with my eyes. And when we were living in Idaho and in the mountains and the woods, and I had an app on my phone that told me when it was coming around and we had a clear light, clear night. And so I rode out on my little electric scooter down the driveway and looked up and right on time, there it was. And, and I guess you were probably on it. So I uh, could be if it yeah. was prior to if it, if it was over the summer, I was definitely on it. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah. 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 So that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. All right. Well, Jeff, this has been really fascinating, brother. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for your witness, your testimony. Um, thank you for your book. And how can people find out more about you if they want to find out more about you or, or if they want to contact you? Do you have that those channels available or what? Uh, I don't uh, have them out in public at all. I do have social media accounts, but I've been completely passive on them since I landed and uh, shortly after I landed in 2016. Uh, so I, I maintain a pretty low profile, I guess, yeah. in that way. Yeah. Uh, to, to learn anything about me, it's, uh, I mean, NASA is good about putting stuff on the internet. So you, people can search my name and there's there's all kinds of stuff out there, photography as well as stories and other things. And I, uh, like you, I'm a frequent speaker in churches and church conferences and that kind of thing. So there's lots of um, those examples out there that uh, just a search will, will bring up. Yeah. Uh, my, my passion in the ministry is to, uh, uh, well, it's, it's largely reflected in the book, uh, to give glory to God as, as creator and provisioning his creation and the work of providence, uh, 
and particularly providence that brings us to faith in, in Christ. Uh, I have done some worldview uh, conference work uh, that's a little bit broader than that, uh, uh-huh. but it's it's so important. Most recently, I'm doing some work to uh, to address the the perception of the conflict between science and scripture, which there is no conflict. Right. Um, no. Uh, so it's um, it's been an amazing privilege. And like you, you've been given a platform and an opportunity to be a witness to Christ. And you, I know, have a uh, uh, an elevated sense of not only purpose in that, but a sense of responsibility to uh, steward what the Lord has given you. And, and you do it well, and I thank God for that. Uh, and that's been my motivation as well, to steward what the Lord has given me, to include the opportunity to... Uh, to get off the spherical earth. Yeah, (laughs) indeed. Indeed, brother. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jeff. This is, this has been a joy to have you. And uh, I know our viewers are really going to, to enjoy and be edified by it. I I appreciate, appreciate you very much and, and uh, praise the Lord for the work that he's, he has done and continues to do through your life. Praise God, Justin. Great to see you. You as well. You as well. And Lord willing, I'll see you in May, correct? That's right. We'll both be at the uh, Truth Matters Conference at the near the Ark anyway uh, yeah. in Kentucky. Yeah. Have you been to the Ark? I never have. No. You're, you're in for a treat. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty amazing. That was quite a testimony. That conference sold out in 20 some minutes. Yeah, it did. It yeah. did. I know I was, I was, uh, shocked at how quickly it sold out, but boy, yeah, it was, it was gone in no time. I, I wish I could extend an invitation to our viewers to come to it, but you can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the fire marshal will let you in, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Jeff, thanks again, brother. And, um, may God bless you and your wife, your family and, and your ministry there at your church in, in Washington. Thank you, Justin. All right. God bless you. All right, dear ones. Well, thank you so very much for joining us. I I trust that this was uh, uh, encouraging to you, edifying for you. It it certainly was to me. So until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, interested in more teaching resources or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference you may contact him at justinpeters.org